Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 1, and we will be reading verses 1 to 5, verses 14 to 19, and verses 26 to 31. It can be found on page 1 of the Red Pew Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser night to govern the light. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Good morning, Knox. It is good to see you here. And happy Mother's Day to all the moms. We are glad that uh, you are here this morning, and we are blessed by your presence in our lives. We are beginning today a series of messages in which we are going to explore the whole idea, the whole practice, the whole reality of worship, which is what we've been doing this morning. We are going to focus in on worship because it is one of the most natural impulses of the human heart. But the thing about this very natural impulse of the human heart is it can go sideways in so many ways, so many strange, odd ways. We can, we can, in our worship, we can do all the right things, and yet our heart can be so distant from God. We may do all the acts of worship, but have not worshiped the true and living God. One way it can go. We can choose to not worship. We have that choice. We can sort of, fold in our hearts, fold our arms and say, not today, God. We can, our worship goes sideways in all sorts of ways. And so it's important for us to visit worship again and again because it is a skill that we need to 
continually be renewed in. We're also asking uh, questions about worship, going to explore what worship is scripturally, because as a church, we're asking questions about how we worship as a church. Our leadership is looking at something called worship renewal. Now, in one sense, worship never changes. It is constant. It is always about bringing glory to God. And yet, in another sense, worship is always changing, because no matter what culture you're in, no matter where you are, what age, worship changes. Every culture, every age has worshiped God with new songs and in fresh ways, and We need to ask that question of ourselves. How might we worship God in 2017 in the heart of Toronto at the corner of Harvard and Spadina? What what does worship look like in a way that engages the culture we live in? Now, as we begin to talk about worship, we really need to start in the beginning, which is a very good place to start. (laughs) Oh, you know it. (laughs) And we're going to start with the story of how God created the world and how we are made to worship. Genesis 1, which we heard. We just heard portions of it. It's a well-known passage. We didn't read all of it because you probably know it. If you haven't read it before, I encourage you to read it today. Genesis 1 reveals how God created the material universe that we live, that we call home. But he created this whole creation as his kingdom. And out of chaos and darkness, out of formlessness, out of what Scripture calls void, nothingness, God calls something into being. God calls order and structure and design and beauty. And God creates through this very highly patterned process of six creating days, ordering the universe in a very structured format to form this good creation, providing a rhythm, a structure, so that human life can flourish fully, so that there's blessing, that there's fruitfulness. Now, whenever you read Genesis, often people, as they read Genesis, almost everybody has this question in their mind. How? How did the world begin? This is the question we import right away in our reading of Genesis. How did it happen? How long did it take? Did it happen through evolution or not? Um, That's the question everyone brings to this, which is unfortunate that we bring all these how questions because they're not as important as the why questions. Science tries to discover the answers to all the how questions. That's science field. Science can never answer the why questions. Genesis addresses the why questions. Why is there a world at all? Why is there human life? What we really need to know about this world, about birds and fowl, about fishes and ocean, what we really need to know about our lives is why? Why did God make us? What is this all for? Why why do we feel the way we do about life and about the world around us? How do we live appropriately in this world according to those why answers? So Genesis 1 is not designed to answer the question of how. It reveals the why of this world. It is designed to talk about creation's, uh, what it means and its significance for us. And Genesis 1, if you read it through, you get a sense for that. It's a poem. Genesis 1 is a poem. It's not a scientific textbook. Genesis 1, in a very artistic way, outlines deep, beautiful theology. 
about why there is this world and who is behind it all. Genesis 1 has this enormous amount of repetition. We just caught a little bit. But over and over again, you have these repeated phrases. There is evening, there is morning the first day. There is evening, there is morning the second day. And then you hear again and again. And God said, and it was so. And God said that it was good. Every day has this repeated rhythm. It's a highly patterned narrative. It's, it's a song. It's a song. Creation itself is a song. The book of Psalms tells us as such, right, that all of creation is singing out God's praise. And Hebrew scholars, as they have studied this opening chapter of Genesis, have noted something else about it. It is a tabernacle scene. It is a temple scene, Hebrew scholars have told us. In describing the creation of this world, Genesis is telling us it is God's temple. It is his sanctuary, the holy dwelling place of God. It, it was published, it was spoken into a context in which there were other stories about how the world began. And in many of those ancient Near East texts, temples were sort of models or microcosms about God and about his dwelling. But Genesis actually reverses that and said, you know what? It is that the, the, the world is actually God's temple. And it presents the whole created universe as the dwelling place of God. And you get a sense of that in Genesis 2, the chapter following Genesis 1 that we didn't read, but this theme continues where it shows us, it pictures for us the garden as a sanctuary, um, as a space in the created order of God where human beings can enjoy bliss and harmony between themselves and God and animals and the land. And so the whole created order is sacred space. It's a temple. And think of what that means. It means that all of life is understood as sacred, as lived before the face of God. It means that all of life, all our living is worship. And we are made in that context as creatures. We are made to worship. The whole world is God's temple. Every moment is a place where you might know and experience the living presence of God. And the entire story of the Bible continues to just, with repeated emphasis, tell us that story of, of a God who is reaching out for us, coming close so that he might be in communion with his people. It's interesting. The central promise throughout Scripture is not, I will forgive you. That's certainly a promise. That's not the central one. You know what the most frequent promise throughout Scripture is? I will be with you. I will be with you because I am with you. Because the whole world is my temple, my dwelling place, God says. I am there with you. But God has to promise that again and again because sin has sort of put us out of communion with God. And so we live in fear and anxiety and we need that continued reminder. God created this world so that we might live in communion with him. But we've fallen out of communion. And so, as, as I said, we've been living in fear ever since. And so God repeatedly sends these reminders. It's like he's putting post-it notes wherever throughout creation saying, I am with you. 
I am in this world. This is my world and I'm with you. And so God says to Noah and to Abraham and to Sarah and then to Jacob and Joseph and to Moses and Joshua and to David and to Amos and then to Mary and Paul and to so many on a list that's way too long to name. God's promise was the same. Do not be afraid for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go because there is no place in creation where God is not because it is his holy temple. And then when God comes to earth in human form, the redemptive name that is given to Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's saying, if you didn't get it from all my prophets, from all the things, here it is again. I'm going to come among you, Emmanuel. I'm with you. Don't forget it. And when Jesus left this earth, the promise was to send the Spirit with this promise, so I am with you always to the very end of the age. And then at the very end of time, we read in Revelation that when heaven and earth come together, in the book of Revelation says that a song, at that time a song is going to go up and that song is simply an echo of the song of Genesis 1, the song of creation. And that song is going to be God's dwelling places now among the people and he will dwell with them. The central message of scripture throughout is that God is determined that you and I should live in communion with him, that we should delight in his life. We are made for worship, made for life with God. And God creates humans, and it's interesting, did you notice, when he creates humans, he gives them a special gift, unique among all his creation. God gives them his image. And again, when when we read that, so many people bring to it the how question. Like, okay, what does it mean? How, How do we have that image? Is it a property? Is it something we possess? Is it found in the intellect? Is it found in our capacity to govern? But remember, Genesis is not asking the how questions. You got to bring to it the why questions. Why does God give humans the image of God? Why does God see fit to give humans alone his image? The image of God gives us our identity. It gives us a, a vocation so that we find our place within this created temple to fully participate in God's life, to fully give God glory. Other parts of creation all have their purpose and identity. They're doing what they were created to do. And so when you stand alongside of a lake at sunset and the sky just comes ablaze with every color that you can imagine and you sense in that moment something more at play, you sense that. Because the lake and the sky and the sun and the clouds and the atmosphere are all doing what they were created to do, worshiping, glorifying God in a way that they were created to do so. It's worship and you're drawn somehow, even if you're not a believer, somehow you know something more is at play because creation is worshiping. Or if you're walking through the ravines of Toronto or through a mountain forest and the birds are just filling the whole forest and you smell the the scent of trees and fauna and flora, earth and you just sense the life teeming in that forest and you sense your own smallness and become aware of a life so much bigger it's because again you've been drawn into worship the trees and the birds and and the earth are are worshiping God in ways that trees and birds and earth are created to do so because the whole world is the temple of God and humans you and me we too are made for worship and God has given us his image 
so that we might be in communion, in relationship with God, so that we might worship in a way that only humans can. So what does it mean to worship? What does it mean for us as humans to commune with God? Well, worship, one way to think of it is worship is treasuring God. Treasuring God with our whole selves, our whole being. Worship is is an act of of giving to God, treasuring, ascribing worth to God in a way that engages, that energizes our whole person, your whole being. Genesis 1 tells us about God, how he created us. He created us with, with a will, with a mind, with the power to act. He gave us reason. He gave us emotions. He gave us a body. And so worship is something that engages your whole person, all of you. And this is really important for our understanding of worship. Because you can come to a worship service. You can go through all the different parts of what we do. You can affirm all the doctrines and beliefs without it ever impacting in your inner being, without you ever experiencing a sense of beauty and joy. And if that doesn't happen, it's not worship. It hasn't fully engaged or energized your full being. Merely learning a truth about God, that's intellectual education, but it's not worship. For example, I can know intellectually that God is good, that he cares deeply for me, but I can still be profoundly anxious. You know, I can be worried about something that's coming up this week, and I haven't worshipped unless the truth of God's goodness comes from my head where, yeah, I understand it, where it descends into my body and touches my emotions and my will so that I live in a different way. Or maybe think of it from an opposite angle. You can go to a worship service and you can, you can have a powerful experience. You might experience great emotion or joy. You can weep. You can have an aesthetic experience where you're just filled with a sense of awe or beauty from the music. So you can have an aesthetic experience. You can have an emotional experience. But if it doesn't change the way you live, if it doesn't change your character, if it doesn't impact your life patterns, it's not really worship. Worship engages you as a whole person. This is how God wired us up. This is how he created us. It engages your whole person as we assign value, as we give our heart's devotion to our creator, as we give him our allegiance, our affection. We worship what we love, what has captured our hearts. And this is so important for us to know, even if you're not a Christian here today. Because here's the deal. All of us worship something. Everyone who exists worships something because this is how we are made to be by God. God has simply constituted human beings as beings that must worship something. And it's not just the Bible that names that reality. It's interesting. There's a postmodern novelist, David Foster Wallace, in a great commencement address at Kenyon College. He said this. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of human life, there is no such thing as atheism. Now, he's not a Christian. He's a postmodern atheism. But he says there's no such atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships, he says. The only choice we get is what we worship. The only choice we get is what we worship because this is how God has created us. The world is not divided into people who worship, religious people, and people who don't, atheists. The world is divided into people who worship the things that will distort your life, 
people who give their heart to things that will never satisfy, that will never deliver joy, and then people who worship the only proper object worthy of the worship of your soul. Those are the only two prospects. You're either worshiping, you're either giving your heart to wrong things, things that will never provide you with the life that you so desire, that you are meant to know, or you're worshiping the one whose worship will never distort your life, that will bring you life that you seek. You're already worshiping something. You're already giving ultimate worth and value to something. Your whole life is is controlled by and oriented to that something that you have given ultimate value to. What is it? The process of of worshiping the true God is recognizing that so often our hearts go to something other than God. We set ourselves, our hearts on something other than God. It grabs our loves, our attention, our affection, our allegiance. But worship is recognizing that and then transferring our hearts back to God, giving him the ultimate value and worth in our lives. Worship is not whipping ourselves up into some frenzy, into something we don't already have. It is, it is shifting the devotion of our heart to God, recognizing we often give it to other things, but in worship we remind ourselves of the one true one who is worthy of our worship. And that is what changes your life. Worship, communion with God, is is the deep need of human life, whether we acknowledge it or not. Communion with God is how we're made to function. And it's ultimately about a loving and about a very present relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we're commanded to love and to worship God. And you might think, well, that's pretty egocentric of God, isn't it? Like, if I were to ask you, love me, worship me, you would rightly say, you got a huge ego problem, Phil. God commands us to love, to worship him, to give him all. He's not doing that because an egocentric or tyrannical dictator. But remember, he is the creator. He knows where we will be fulfilled. He created us to be lovers and he knows what makes for human flourishing. We were designed to delight in our creator. To find his presence and in his power our great strength and our comfort. And so he calls us to worship. And if it's true that we are made to be in communion with God, but if we are giving our heart's devotion to to things other than God, things that will never really satisfy, that can never fill us, then coming to worship, then worshiping God is so important because nothing else can heal us. Worship is actually a part of our healing and our restoration. Do you see this? We were made to live in communion with God, but we've sinned. We've walked away from communion with God. We endlessly try to find satisfaction in so many other things and places. As St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless, God, until they find their true rest in you. And so worship then is healing because as we worship God, as we center our lives again on God, on his presence, on his goodness, on his power, our lives come back into alignment with how we're created. Worship is what heals us because in worship we come to our creator and our hearts and our lives find home. 
Only when you see God's love as more satisfying, more valuable, more beautiful than anything else the world might offer you, you won't be bothered by anything that life throws at you. Only when you see God's honor and a relationship with him as more beautiful, more powerful than any form of honor or pleasure, you won't be bothered by not getting promotions or getting criticized. If you, if you keep getting freaked out or bothered or find yourself on an emotional roller coaster, if you're constantly struggling with anxiety or fretting or feel despondence or fear what others think, Nothing less than reassigning the ultimate value of your life from wherever it is to God is going to change you and bring you joy. Do you see this? Worship is not just coming on Sunday and doing a bunch of things that we do here. It's not a duty. It's recognizing. Worship is recognizing our hearts are mostly planted somewhere else. And worship is a process of realigning our hearts, transferring that trust through what we do, through singing, through prayers, through scripture, realigning our trust, placing it on God, the true treasure of our life. And so every act of worship is healing. It is restorative. It is pulling your heart off those things that control you onto the thing that will never distort your life, the one who is your life. Worship is an act of healing and restoration, and through it, you're becoming more, you're, you're growing. You can think of worship as, as increasing our capacity to experience the presence of God, the increased capacity to live in every moment in communion with God, to know him, the capacity to see him, to experience his presence. So every act of worship, reorienting our hearts and lives, grows us up. In this capacity to know God, to love him, to enjoy him forever. Isn't that what we so badly want? To to live with this sense of God's presence as we go through life. We want that. In many of our conversations, this is something we deeply long for, but we feel this gap, right? We all know how we can go through a week sometimes with hardly a thought towards God. And we can sometimes feel this absence, what feels like the absence of God. So how do we find our way back into communion with him? This is what we long for. To live with the face of God. Philosopher at the University of Southern California, his name is Dallas Willard. He's a spiritual writer as well. He, He writes about a boy he once knew. This boy, his mom died at an early age and profoundly affected him and he was just sad and and lonely especially at night and so often at night he would go to his father's room and he would say dad can I sleep with you tonight and his dad would bring him into bed and tuck him in with him and and even then the son couldn't rest easy until he knew that he was not only with his dad but his dad's face was facing him and so he whispered to his dad dad you awake Dad, are you facing towards me? And his dad would say, you're not alone. I'm with you. My face is turned towards you. And then when at last he was assured of that, he could fall asleep. He could rest. And and this professor reflects on this reality and how much we are like that boy. How lonely life can be. 
and how much we long to be in communion with God, this is what fills that deep loneliness. We want to live with God's face towards us, to live with this awareness of God's presence. And as we come to worship, that deep ache in our hearts finds rest. In worship, we are seeking the face of God. Now, this is only possible, you got to know, through Jesus Christ. Because we, we lack, we, we sense this absence from God because of sin in our lives. We, we've, we, sin separates us from God so that we don't see his face, so that we don't sense his presence. In fact, we can't. Remember what God told Moses when Moses said, God, I want to see your face. And, and God said, no one can see the face of God and live. Strange, isn't it? How this impulse to, 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 to experience the face of God is, might kill us. But we're made to know the face of God, to live in his presence. So how can we come back to God? It is only through Jesus Christ, through the death and resurrection, Jesus has made a way for us to come home to God. Think of the cross. On the cross, Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because God turned his face away from Jesus. Jesus experienced that God-forsakenness so that we, so that we might know the shining face of God so that we, God might turn his face towards us in love and grace, so that we might enjoy communion with God. Only through trusting in Jesus Christ, what he has done, does that come to us. And so worship happens when we savor that work of Jesus Christ, as we reflect on it, as we're moved by it, as it melts our heart, that self-giving love that created this world, that we were made to, to know and to participate in. And so in worship, we take our place in communion with God through what Jesus has done. And so we rehearse the story of God, how, is, how God is reaching out to us, always, everywhere. We reorient our lives again around the only one who could satisfy our deepest longings. We're seeking the face of God. It's a skill we need to learn. We're training ourselves to be in communion with God. And then sometimes the Holy Spirit makes that palpably real, doesn't he? We can, we can be worshiping and, and, and sense the presence of God, sense what is always there, it's so present and palpable and real. God is present in his power, in his grace, in his love, in his majesty. That's our hope. That's our expectation, our goal in worship to sense, to come into the presence of God, to know communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't come here for a little inspiration, for a little pick-me-up for the week. We seek the living God because this is what we're made for. Let's come to him right now in prayer. And I want to invite you in this time of prayer to worship the living God. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes, and let's seek the face of the one who loves you, who's here to heal you. And we're going to do this in our prayer by taking a truth of God and, and reflecting on it. We're just going to warm our hearts around the reality of God. So let's pray. God, this act of prayer is worship in which we reorient, we realign our hearts, we recalibrate them because, God, we need to begin remembering that we haven't done that. This week, again, so much has caused anxiety, 
We've been worried and we've been absorbed with those worried. We felt fears. Think for a minute this past week, everyone. What has absorbed your thoughts? Where have you experienced deep discontent, deep dissatisfaction? Was it around work or achievement? Maybe around a relationship or the absence of a relationship. Take a moment to to, to bring those to God. God, we put our trust in so many things other than you. We've set our hearts on so many other things. Perhaps it's work and the accomplishment or the achievement or the identity, the status it gives us. Perhaps it's our, our abilities, our resumes that we've treasured. Maybe it's relationships or the affirmation that could come from those relationships. God, we've treasured these things inordinately. We've put our identity in these things. We've looked to find in these things what only you can deliver. We simply need to name this reality, God. But we realize these things can't satisfy. So we're going to focus now, God. We're going to transfer our heart's desire and affection to you. And I'm just going to now read three different passages. We'll read one at a time, and we'll take time to simply savor them. And in those, as you savor, as you meditate on them, worship God, thank Him, praise Him for that quality. God, you are great. You're the great king of all gods. In your hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to you. The sea is yours. You made it. That by your hands, you formed the earth. You are the alpha and the omega. You are the first and the last. You are the beginning and the end. There is nothing outside of your guidance or leadership, your faithful purposes. You are able, Lord. You are able to do far more than we ever imagined or think. And so we worship you, our faithful, trustworthy King of all things. Soak that into your heart for a moment. You are worthy, God. So much of our anxiety is we don't trust your goodness and so we try to find it somewhere else. But today, we remind ourselves that you are gracious and compassionate. You are slow to anger. You are rich, rich in love, God. You are good to all. You have compassion on all you've made, which includes us. You are trustworthy, God, in all your promises, in all you do. You are faithful. You uphold all those who fall down. You lift up those who are weighted down. You are good, God. You are everything good. And any satisfaction we seek in so many other things, it is found only in you. Soak that in. God, satisfy us with your goodness. God, maybe more than anything, what our hearts desperately long for is love. And we seek it out in all the wrong places, God. We go looking in so many places for that love to fill our hearts, but it is found alone in you. Thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. God, thank you that nothing in this life, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from your love that is in Christ Jesus. Soak in that love that God has. Worship him for it. We bless you. We worship you. Almighty God, you are good. You are great. Thank you, God, for being our soul satisfaction, our heart's one desire. Continue to realign, redirect our hearts to its true worship in you alone. Thank you, God, for making us, designing us for worship. And in all we do, wherever we go, may we loudly recognize and proclaim, this is your world, God. May we see you and spot you and spy you in every moment and every place. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.